0: Psalms. Uh, today we'll be looking at Psalm 24, um, and I've really enjoyed uh, working through some of these psalms. As the theme um, of this uh, sermon series has to do with Jesus Christ being the Victor. Christ is Victor. That is uh, the understanding of the point of this sermon series. Would be to give a clear expression or interpretation of all 150 psalms in a coherent way by looking at a select few and saying that if you understand Psalm 1 and 2 then you actually have the key to unlock all the Psalms, that it is organized in such a way. We'll see that today as we know that the first Psalm is a Psalm to invite us to meditate upon the law of God. And the second Psalm is an invitation to consider a man who is the anointed of God and who should rule the whole world. Understanding those two things, meditating on God's law, meditating on his kingship, makes the rest of these Psalms open up entirely. And here we are in Psalm 24 where we find a question that is very, very practical for us. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It opens Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's not wrong to say that's a beautiful psalm, because it's a psalm, and they're all beautiful. But it really is in the way that it's so short and says so much and so little. Particularly the middle. There's a break. There's a pause. We're talking about going up the hill. Who gets to do that? And then. We're talking to gates. And it turns into a whole dialogue between two groups of people. In a certain sense you could say this psalm uh, is not practical, it's not very practical at all in one aspect, is because it's talking about going into Jerusalem to go up to the temple. And then you think, Well, we're here now gathered and reading and that's not very helpful because we're not in Jerusalem and even if we were in Jerusalem there is no temple so really who cares who can go up the hill of the Lord because there's nothing really to go up to anymore but there's another way in which this psalm is actually more true and very practical there's a deeper question, or you could say a higher question, to the practice of life. That is, how do I enter in to the presence of God? Very practical question. Not many days ago, to speak with a dear, dear, dear acquaintance, uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, it only has a few days. And I read her this psalm. And I couldn't imagine anything better to give her. I couldn't imagine any question to put in front of her. More important for her to think with her closing minutes than, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? So today, that's what we look at because we understand God is very high psalm opens and says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof that is he's up here and everything that's not him is down there and everything that's not him is everything that he created and everything is founded by him he's established it upon the rivers the earth is founded upon the seas the world and all that dwells within. That is, we have a domain we saw even, as we've been working through this sermon series in Psalm 8 last week, that it is our world to look over, that it is our dominion. But we are over the creation as God is over us. That God is actually the one highest and most exalted above it all. <laughs> we've been made a little lower than the heavenly being, Psalm 8 says, and crowned with great glory and honor. And we've been given dominion over the works of God's hands. That is all of this creation. But creation for God is like a constructed building. It's just something he plays with. Something he makes. The very domain, the time space in which we live, to God is nothing than a Lego set. It's something that he holds in his hand and builds. That's why the image here is a construction language. It's it's God constructing a building. He founded it, it says, upon the seas as a master builder, a craftsman or an artisan, someone who is an architect who can see the whole thing from the beginning to end and make the world with a perfect uniformity of nature that everything is just remarkable. Remarkable. The special pleading of Um, the complexity of this life, that we could say, it just so happens to be the case, that this world happens to be perfect for us to live in. When we look everywhere else in all of creation to see that it would not be perfect to live in. We say, oh, it's just a matter of, we are here because the creation was made this way and we evolved this way. Or the reverse could be, no, this is all created this way because God put us in this way, because he is a master architect. A master technician. Job 38 says, He founded the earth and he stretched a line upon it. That is, he laid out the very foundations as a man would build a building. Psalm 104 says, He stretched out the heavens like a tent. And he put the posts and sunk them into the ocean. That is, this whole cosmos is his little tent he made for you and I. And so when we look at it, and we realize that there is one above it, there is one infinite and absolute, untouchable, distinct, who is above this whole thing we call the world. And he wasn't for a moment or even for a second exhausted by his power or his riches in doing so. See, like, This phrase here is this. He founded it upon the seas, particularly that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You have to hear that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it is His. He made a mansion, but He's not house poor. Do you know the phrase house poor? It's when you want a really big house, and you push your budget to the limit. And all you can do is mortgage that house, pay the taxes on that house, do the repairs on that house, and just get by. So your home, which should be your sanctuary, your place of rest, actually is your prison. And you're bound by it. No vacations. No indiscretionary spending. You're house poor. You see... God made it all, and the fullness thereof, that he had more money to fill every room with the best furniture. He had more money to put the kitchen with the best cabinets. He made this whole thing that we still have not measured the cosmos. And we only turn our eye to the left and right and find more immense galaxies beyond our comprehension. He filled it. And it didn't do a dent or a challenge to his pocketbook. And then when he made it all, as we find in the first day, God created the light and the darkness corresponding to the fourth day in which he filled the light and the darkness by making the sun for the day and the moon and the stars for night. In the second day, God made the sky and the seas. And then in the fourth day, he filled the sky, we're told, with birds birds. And the seas with fish. And the third day, he made the fertile land and all its plants. But then corresponding, the sixth day, he filled that land with all the animals, lastly man in the middle of it. That is, he created the whole thing, then he filled the whole thing up. And his power cannot be challenged in the least. And then, at the very end of it all, he says to man, Now you go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the very way He created the world is that it is to His glory that we breathe. It is to His praise that we live and move and have our being. It is to His, the fullness, that is the story of this thing called what God has done in creation has not yet been completed. There is more to you living your life now that is something to the fullness of the expression of God's beauty and magnity and all the things in your life, the children you have, the work you do, the houses and the yards and the hobbies. It is all there to find Detailed expression of God's beauty in this world that would not be known had he not created it all. And you, and the only things that maybe you or your children or your wives or husbands see in the most intimate closet rooms of your home, that God sees that. And when you tell them a little story before they go to bed, when you kiss your spouse before you go to work, that was to fill the world with God's glory. And you would say, well, how important is that? No one else sees what I do at home, except a few people in my family, and no one really cares about them, because they're not rich or famous. But God sees what you do with your life. And that is to fill the world with his glory. These are not in my notes. I don't know how we're going to get to the sermon. That was the first verse. I wasn't planning on this. I just think of that where the angels say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The earth is full of your glory and they can't stop singing it. So now to the main point of the song. This is beautiful. So you find here Is the question. The question is posed. That since God is above all. He and himself. The question is. How or who rather. Shall ascend the hill of the Lord. Who shall stand. In his holy place. There's three. Layers to unfold. In that question. I hope to unfold them. Kind of like peeling back one layer at the other. That on the outer layer we call it. Ascending to the temple, there's a second layer of the ascent of the soul, the soul going up, and then there is an ascent to heaven itself. That through these three layers, you see this psalm begin to blossom like a rose, like petals of layers that mature. The beauty of really how God even created the world, wrapped up into these psalms, is that there's a layer upon layer that when it flowers out, you see what's being said here that though in a certain sense it's talking about going up to the temple, but in another sense, I speak to a dying woman, and I read this psalm, and we all cry, because we know there's more to it than that. Ascending to the temple has to do with 2 Samuel 6. See, The psalm has a distinct and close connection that many people have made between a point in history in 2 Samuel 6 in which the king David had just conquered all of the Philistines around his area. And he was very successful. And it's looking like he's kind of like the man in Psalm 1. That is, in all his ways he prospers. David just couldn't lose battles. He was amazing. It was like he was anointed by God. God's Messiah. God's anointed. And so he had just completed destroying or taking over the last enemy city of the Philistines. And it seems as though now he's almost like the man in Psalm 2. He seems all the Gentiles with a rod of iron. That is, everywhere David goes, Gentile nations fall. Sounds very much like the man in Psalm 2. And things are going so well, and now there's peace surrounding him to such a point that it's time for him to do something that never happened to solidify his power in one city of Jerusalem. And by doing that, most importantly, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into that city, which never had a permanent resting place. So he brought the Ark of the Covenant, this Ark into Jerusalem, and in the context of this, it was a fanfare, it was a parade. There was singing and dancing, instruments, children, women, and joy, and everyone is having fun. That's the point where David dance. everyone talks about. It is, it's like it's all making sense. I'm the king, David thinks. I'm the anointed. I'm the one to subdue. And here now we have a localized city in which to consolidate power and begin to have the kingdom of God come upon earth. This ark that had to go into Jerusalem, it's really nothing more than a wooden box, little over three feet long, about two feet wide, a little over two feet high, it was overlaid with gold. and inside the box were Ten Commandments. And outside the box were two rods attached by which to carry it. The way it was carried was very important to God. Uh, numbers four, only a distinct tribe of Israel, the Kohathites, were allowed to carry the ark. They had to carry the ark on the poles attached to its side. Those poles had, it says, in Numbers seven nine, to rest upon the shoulders of these Levites, the Kohathites. In Numbers four fifteen, it says. They must use these rods, lest they touch the ark and they die. On top of this ark was what is called the mercy seat. One of the most beautiful phrases in all of scripture. It covered the ark. It was a gold lid of pure gold with two sculpted cherubim, angels of a sort, on each side looking down. Center was the seat itself, from which we're told in Exodus 25:22 that God said, I will meet with you from above that mercy seat. That is, not necessarily touching the seat, not necessarily on it, but above it. That is, there's a distinction between, this is just a wooden box, okay? It's always going to just be a wooden box. But boy, it is a really important wooden box. Right above it is the very glory of the God who made that whole world we just discussed. I will rest there between the two cherubim. And then I will speak with you from the mercy seat, he says. This ark is the only structure that was actually permitted in to the center of the temple, the holiest of all holies. There was nothing else allowed in there except this golden box with on top of it a mercy seat. And that's temple was inside, of course, the city of Jerusalem. And so you find here as David in Second Samuel 6 is approaching Jerusalem with the ark and all the fanfare and all the joy that he has been so successful in battle and everything is going wonderfully, and there is a capital city to be had now from which God's kingdom can operate out of. It seems like Psalm 2.6, where it says, I have set my anointed, my Messiah in Zion, on my holy hill. It makes perfect sense. It's all coming together. Everything that God has ever promised. But then we are introduced to the problem of ascending the hill of the Lord as they're going up the ark, is being carried, but not by men. The ark, we're told, was actually put on a cart. And the text says, it was. don't worry, it was put on a new cart. It had that new cart smell. <laughs> and so they were thinking, this will be good. We'll put the ark on a cart and have the oxen, the animals, carry it do you remember in Psalm 8 how the oxen are below us? We're above them, and the angels are above us. I God's above it all. There's images of angels on the ark. God's hovering above, and we're going to put oxen here, pulling this cart. Doesn't seem to be right. The reality of what happened is, we're told and we're warned that something bad is going to happen. Because in Second Samuel six two it says this the Ark of God is called by the name the Lord of hosts. That is, the name for the box is Yahweh Yahweh of armies. Unless the Bible said it, that would be pretty a blasphemous statement to call a box Yahweh. But there is such a close connection to this box and the very manifest presence of the distinct holy Yahweh who is God like no other gods and who is the God of all power and violent armies that that's the name for this box. And that's our warning that something was going to go wrong. Because a man named Uzzah and Ahio were two men working with this brand new card. It was a nice card. Uzzah lifted out his hand and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled and the box almost fell. And We're told that the anger of the Lord was so kindled in that moment that he struck down Uzzah in that place and he fell dead next to the ark. And everything stopped. All the song, all the dancing, all the praise, all the parade, all this triumphal procession, presuming to just enter into the hill of the Lord, done. Man just died. Told that David immediately was angry, and he was afraid. He didn't even go near the box again. He gave the box to someone else, and didn't even want to be associated with it anymore. Because he realized something that this psalm is trying to cause us to pause and think. Who can actually ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the question. And the question actually follows with a very convenient and clear answer. He who has a clean hand and pure heart. The whole presumption of what Uzzah actually thought he could do. See, there's a certain kind of dirtiness to animals, like the oxen that were pulling that cart. And there's a certain kind of dirtiness to dirt. That if the cart would have actually flipped over the ark, the ark would have fallen onto the dirt. This center of Israeli worship would have been tarnished in the mud. But see, there is a distinct kind of dirtiness to the human hand. And that was not considered in the least. The fact that he thought he could stop it from getting dirty by touching it. The fact that he thought he was clean enough to relatively be the one to manage this ark. And relatively be the one to manage God and keep him along so that he could go up the hill of the Lord. Immediately stopped with final death. Impossible. He is holy. White hot in his holiness and that the whole psalm causes us to pause to consider, should you wager with this? Is this a um, gambling game? How well do you know yourself, and how well do you know God? And are you willing to make that wager? The story of it all, don't be like Uzzah. his hand looked okay and it was not so the question of course comes with this answer he who has clean hands and a pure heart see how the hands and the heart are connected maybe I'm guessing ten fingers ten commandments I don't know but the heart should have the law of God written upon it and there's a connection that if your heart is impure then therefore, your hands, which extends from the volitionary intentions of your own heart, do things that you want to do. And those things you want to do are dirty. Dirty. All ten of them. If God would have judged us on what we've just done with our pinky alone, we'd go to hell. We've got nine other witnesses that speak otherwise to say, it is bad, it is very bad. The foolishness of it all is that's exactly how Uzzar was thinking when he thought, I will save God. I'll save the dignity of God as I go up the hill of the Lord. I'll touch the ark. The problem here really is the problem of relativity. And so here is that second ascent. It's not just about this psalm going up the hill of the Lord that is into the temple. It's an ascent of the soul. He says... This man who can actually goad up the hill, he does not lift up his soul to what is false. He does not swear deceitfully. You see, there is a lifting up here. That if your soul is not lift up to falsehood, that is... Exalting and worshipping in what is not true, that is, false idol worship, or false witness, or anything that is false. That you exalt your soul, you move your volitionary center in the way of wickedness at any point. That is, at any point, the relativity of this passage, that is the danger of it all. If it was not a matter of relativity, Uzzah would not have died. Because he's relatively more clean than the next guy, and of course we know he's not Adolf Hitler... He is not absolutely clean. And so if you read this psalm and say, how could I ascend the hill of the Lord? I just have to be relatively clean. I have to have a relatively clean hand and a relatively clean heart. And I have to relatively, sometimes, most not, most of the time, not lift up my soul to what is false. But if I ever with my pinky, have ever lifted up my pinky to what is false. Just once, what is it? I don't know. Do you like Gambling. Do you want to try? Is it Russian roulette? Is there a bullet in the chamber? Touch the ark, ascend the hill, pass through death, and see how it goes. In Scripture, at every point, we're encouraging the wisdom of God's Word. As these psalms are opened up to us as a meditation book in Psalm 1, to pause. See, the beauty of the psalms is that they're not expressing this answer so pointedly. They're causing you to slow down. They're causing you to consider your life and meditate. Because the problem of our relative cleanness is attached so closely to the pause. Selah. No one knows what that word means. That's why it's not translated in English. It's just there. People guess it means... A musical notation. Maybe a transition in the instruments in some sort. It's inviting you to take in this fact. Only he who has a clean hand and pure heart can ascend the hill to the Lord. Selah. Pause. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. Someone's trying it. Someone's attempting to ascend. Let's keep reading. That the king of glory may come in. Well, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. David slaughtered all the Philistines, but it was not him. There is one who is mighty in battle. There is one who actually walks where he pleases and no one tells him otherwise. There is one in which every door of all creation is open to him because he made every door in all of creation. That he can actually say, now I'm going to go home now. I'm going to go up to my lot. I'm going to go up to the house of the Lord. By the way, beep, beep, automatic garage door. Open those doors now. And they do. Do you see the invitation Of a consideration, that the question is that, but who is this one, the Lord of glory? Are we talking about a messianic king? Are we talking about how David's able to do such a thing like this because he's such a powerful king? Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, who is this King of glory? The Yahweh of hosts, the same name given to the box. Yahweh alone. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. To the glory of God alone. Through Jesus Christ who is autotheon, Yahweh alone. Trust in anything else at your own demise. Do you see how it points to everything of Jesus being that victor? When I sat With that woman, I said, now let's consider how we can ascend the hill of the Lord. And I said, I have bad news. I'm going to keep reading. And it says we have to have clean hands and a pure heart. Isn't that bad news? Isn't that sad? The relativity of it all, in summary then, is this, that we are relatively clean, that is, there's always an assumption or an uncertainty, or rather a presumption, a presumption to proceed up that hill, that we would actually take hold of the hill of God, the Lord of hosts. That's the fatal flaw. But the solution of it all is that our blessedness, though imperfect, can actually still be blessedness because the Lord of hosts is the God who is our Savior. That, see, it is not just the Lord of hosts, which is this box of the Old Testament, which was a mystery and a type. But you see, on top of that mercy seat, there was blood all over it. And so now we know that the Lord of hosts is also God of our salvation. For it says, he, this man who is able to go, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That is, the only way you're really going to get up there, unless, of course, you happen to be Yahweh is you know the Lord of hosts who is the God of your salvation. The reason that we could ascend the hill of the Lord, even though we relatively have clean hands and relatively have pure hearts, some days and not others, the reason we can ascend the hill of the Lord, though we relatively do not always lift up ourselves to what is false, but very often do, The reason we can ascend the hill of the Lord, even though we sometimes lift up ourselves to the Lord, that is, seeking his face, is because the verse says this, such is the generation of those who seek him. You don't have to be perfect. You have to seek him. That is, you have to have faith. That is, you're saved by grace through faith. That is, look for him. Not perfectly, but look for him. Seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The only reason we can ascend with all of this relativity is because it is based on the true God. Your faith is weak. Your righteous acts are weak. Everything you've done good, eh, everything you've done bad, that's pretty bad. But it's directed toward the one true God. Therefore, all relativity, gone. Extinguished. It's absolute, perfect righteousness, perfect blessedness. See your relativity, the so-so eh, eh, of your life, which is I do a few nice things, but I'm really not always that nice. And if you really want to push me, you can always find more. Is extinguished. It's gone because the blessing is tied to the one who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. That's a distinct phase. It's a reason he said it that way. It was Jacob. And Genesis 32 sought God's face. He was in the middle of the night. He was alone, and a man appeared to him. Suddenly, just a man appeared to him and wrestled him. Wrestled him all night. And Jacob wanted to be blessed by God. And this man was wrestling him. And it was an even match, and it went all night, and their energy was exhausted and extinguished. And the surprising power to this man, this is the man who Jacob met, is that at the very end, when you really should be the tiredest from wrestling, is the man said, let me go. Let me go. The day is dawning. Why does daytime matter for a wrestling match? It doesn't. Jacob said, no, I will not unless you bless me. So the man just touched his hip and threw it out of socket. Jacob realized he's wrestling a man that's not just like any man. Let me go, for the day is broken. I will not unless you bless me, he said. The man said, what is your name, Jacob, deceiver? I've lifted up my heart to what is false my whole life. Your name now is Israel. You prevailed with God, and I let you win. That's all the gospel is, wrestling God and him letting you win. All of your selfishness your whole life, the way you were when you were 10, 20, and 30, has he been wrestling you? And he says, what is your name? The man said, why do you ask me my name? And so he blessed them there. And so Jacob didn't know the man's name. But he named that place Peniel, which means the face of God. Blessed is the man who seeks the face of the God, Jacob. And Jacob is fully convinced that he saw a man who was God. How could you ascend the hill of the Lord? This is the third and most meaningful ascent. Yes, it's talking, the psalm is talking about ascending the temple. That's why it was used. It was sung in the ancient cultural, uh, uh, cultic life of Israel. And the psalm is talking about how we ascend our hearts either in seeking the face of God or seeking in what is untrue. But it is most pointedly speaking about the very ascent to heaven itself. You see, yes, this holy hill, if you would keep reading in Psalm 48, is called a holy mountain that is beautiful in elevation, and it is in the far north. And that word, Zephon, far north, is not talking about going up to Canada. See, in Isaiah 14, far north, means to be above the clouds, above the stars, above the mountains. That is, the hill of the Lord, of what was in Zion, what was in Jerusalem, was just a picture of the hill of the Lord, which is above the clouds, which is above the hills, which is above the mountains and the stars. It is the mountain in the far north. So how beautiful in elevation is the hill of the Lord. That in Hebrews 4, we're told that it only served as a type and a copy of what was to come. That it was speaking about a heavenly pattern of true reality. And that in Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. The heavens. That is, this whole thing is about Him ascending to heaven. Heaven. But who is this man? See, if God can go do what God wants to do in all of creation, because he made it in the fullness thereof, why should they ask? Why should the gates have to say, now who is this Lord of glory? Because they've never seen a Lord of glory like this. What man kicks through the door of heaven? You can imagine the image, the poetic Display that the gates of heaven are spoken of as the people on the walls. And looking down they say, now he has the appearance of a man. No man has ever made it this far. Uzzah didn't even make it past the box. Who is that Lord of glory? And the incarnated logos, Jesus Christ himself says... I am Yahweh of armies, and I have won the battle. Look at my wounds, and I am victorious. And these are my battle scars. Now open those gates. And he ascended. And I love how Athanasius said, The Lord came and overthrew the devil and purified the air and made a way to heaven. He reopened the road to heaven, saying, Lift up these gates and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That is why the Christians in the early church said, We call ourselves the way. Before they were called Christians, the Romans understood them as those who called themselves the way. For they were saying, all you worship is demons and unclean spirits. But there is one who has purified the air with his own body in ascending a man into the heavenly throne room of God. And he sat down on that seat with his blood-stained hands and it truly became a mercy seat. And with those real hands that are pierced, Do you understand that you can come to the hill of the Lord now? For anyone who has clean hands and a pure heart can ascend. And you have to know that the cleanliness of your hands are on the other side of those doors. That he has pushed those doors open and no other hand could ever have dared. So trust him. Give your life to him because your life is already hidden with him and you are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Dear Father God, we thank you that you have cleansed the way for us. We thank you, Lord, that we know that there is a path up, that there is an ascension that we are part of You are Christus victor. And we are the spoils of your war. Now lead us in the train of your robe and take us captive for righteousness in the city of righteousness, with clean hands of righteousness, with a pure heart of righteousness. And Lord, pour out your spirit so that we might be sons of righteousness now in this wicked, wicked world. In Jesus' name, amen.